From the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Morning, Redemption Arcadia. How you doing? Happy Super Bowl Sunday. I'm only here so that I don't get fined. You can Google that later. All right. So anyway, my name is Frank. I'm the uh, lead pastor and the top running back from Redemption Arcadia, and we're glad you're here. Did you know that the uh, Super Bowl now is officially the, uh, the uh, most popular national holiday in the United States of America? Oh, my goodness. I even see one jersey down here. Oh, my. Is there, are there any other jerseys? Okay. I don't. There's a Cardinals shirt. This guy is living in a fantasy world, I'm telling you. Anyway, um, so just kidding. Uh, I, I ordinarily don't do this, but now I feel compelled to. Uh, Seattle Seahawks, yay, Seattle. Okay, uh, uh, New England Patriots, yay. Yeah, okay. Super Bowl party food. Yeah, okay, okay. thank you very much. All right, so. Car- what? <laughs> Arizona Cardinals, yeah, all right, so. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about hockey. So we got, we got it going on here this morning, I'm telling you. Hey, I want to remind you of, or not remind you, I want to tell you about something new. Um, David Massey and I, David is our pastoral resident, uh, one of our pastoral residents, and some of you know him. He and I, the last three weeks on Wednesday night, have been doing the membership class, and that's been awesome, and we wrapped that up. And uh, David and I got together and were talking about what to do if we were going to do anything like next, what was going to be the next thing. And both of us have had it impressed upon us that um, Christians uh, who are mature in their faith or, or who have been walking with Christ for a long time, as well as Christians who are new in their faith. And both of us, when we were new in our faith, we went through this very same thing. But it, it, you don't necessarily have to be new in your faith to faith, face this challenge. But we found a lot of people who just come to us and uh, quietly and humbly, but the sort of confidentially say, the Bible's a hard thing to try to figure out and to read and to understand. And I, I know I'm supposed to read it, but I read it and it's hard to make sense of it. And so uh, David and I are going to teach starting on February 18th, Wednesday, February 18th, for four weeks right here in this room, uh, a class called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And what we're going to do is we're going to explain uh, everything that that challenges people about how to read the Bible because it really is a, a book like no other that you would ever read. And so how it was put together and some of the history and the context and the literary techniques that are used in there. And, and we think that that four weeks would really help you if you want to engage in how to go deeper in just being able to read and understand scriptures. We would encourage you to sign up for that class. Stephanie this week will get the registration for it put up on the city so you could register. And we, we ask you to register not so that we can take your information and sell it to the government. We would never do anything like that. But we ask you to, re- that's a joke, we would ask you to register so that, so that we know how much food to get because we always feed you a little bit of dinner first and then, uh, and then we go into the class. So that'll start February 18th and run through March 
uh, 11th. So I just want to remind you about that. By the way, I want to thank Maria Bear for leading us this morning. Uh, Cody is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. It's for you back there or out there. Um, Cody is down in Tucson leading our congregation in Tucson this morning. And uh, Rick Umble, who is our pastoral resident in the uh, music and worship area, uh, he and his wife, Jess, this past week had their first baby. So he's a little bit preoccupied. That's also really good. We appreciate the fact that Rick and Jess are really into church growth. So that's, that's also a, a good thing. So we are in our fourth week of this and last week of this series that we've, we're calling God's Family. Next week, uh, we start the Gospel of Mark. We'll probably take a year, maybe a year and two months to work our way through the Gospel of Mark. But uh, right now we're wrapping up this series called God's Family. And the way we've de- defined family, in this case, when we understand there's nuclear family and our family of friends and our family of coworkers and all those other uh, families, we, we got all that. We talked about that the first week. But ultimately we're talking about God's family and the fact that the principles of God's family trickle down to all of these other relationships and families that we have. But essentially it starts here with God's family. The, the people who are united by the gospel of Christ, the people that actually have a unity that's even stronger than DNA, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're adopted by God as his sons and daughters, and so it's the church, it's the the bride of Christ. And we've looked at this series through the lens of creation, that was week number one, everything was created good, and then fall, that was week number two, sin enters the picture, and it mars everything, it corrupts everything, it, it, it disrupts the created order, it disorders, uh, is another way of saying it, the created order, a- and so uh, what happens is our relationship with God is marred, our relationship with others is marred, this is all the fall, our relationship with ourselves is marred, and our relationship with the creation itself is also marred. Everything has been corrupted, and that's a bad thing. And, and, and then we looked at last week uh, redemption, which Tyler took, that, that even as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall happens, God begins to promise that he's going to redeem us and then ultimately restore us, which is what we're going to be looking at today is, is restoration. And, and one of the important things that we've carried through all uh, four weeks of this series is this idea that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we were created, when, it, when, it, when the creation was good, we were created with five markers of God's identity as human beings. We are image bearers of God. We are rulers of everything that he has created and given us. Not rulers in an oppressive and abusive way, but rulers as stewards to help things flourish. We are the pinnacle of his creation. We are actually different and separated in a sense from the rest of creation in that we are the pinnacle. Uh, Paul says we're his masterpiece in Ephesians chapter uh, 2. We are the pinnacle of creation. And being the pinnacle of creation, that comes obviously with tremendous privileges, but it also comes with lots of responsibilities. Those who have privilege often forget that privilege always comes with responsibility. But it was good that we were created as the pinnacle We are also created to be on mission, in other words, to reflect and demonstrate God's goodness to the rest of the created order. And then we are created uh, as God's provision, for God's provision. We are beneficiaries of all that he has created and given us. But then it doesn't stop there. Even as Tyler said last week, 
We are blessed, yes, but it doesn't stop there. If we just receive the blessing and then never give the blessing, we've got a problem. As beneficiaries of God's provision, we also must recognize that we are also benefactors of God's provision, that we also give away God's provision to others. And then we look at Genesis chapter 2 and we see in verses 18 through 25, especially in 24 and 25, that we were also created with these five characteristics or what I would call threads that help everything flourish. We're created as covenant beings that that we're always going to be outward focused, not curved in on ourselves, but we're going to be outward focused, concerned about the other and making covenants with others uh, regardless of the cost to us, that we have this tremendous level of intimacy that we've never experienced as sinful fallen people, but, but it's something that we desperately want. We know it's there. It's, God has created that and put it in our heart, and it's a desire that we have to be truly, authentically vulnerable and transparent and intimate with other people without any impurity entering that, that intimacy. And, and we had that at one time, and we were, we were created with this yieldedness, this ability to submit to one another and, again, be outward-focused, and that we were created as a as a community, and that we would bond together. The two shall become one, that we're common in our mission and our purpose. And then, of course, we were created to be very generous and constantly giving rather than taking and receiving. But then, as I said, it gets broken, and we're exiled from the garden. Essentially, we're exiled from purity and holiness because of sin. And then along comes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that begins the process of redemption and then ultimately restoration. And that redemption and restoration always involves humility, grace, and forgiveness. Humility for us to recognize our need for grace and forgiveness that only God can provide. And so today we look at restoration, which is the completion of God's story and of our story. It's God's promise, as again Tyler said last week in Ephesians 1, it's God's promise to restore, restore all things. And And so naturally a question might be, well, what is he restoring? Well, he's restoring perfection in paradise. He's restoring essentially the garden. He's he's restoring, I would say even more important, he's restoring created order without any disorder in the midst of that created order. He's restoring those 10 things that we just talked about. He's restoring things to the way they're supposed to be. And again, the human condition pines for this. We we desire this. We, We know it's out there. Sometimes we can't articulate it, but we know there's something better out there. And so we're going to talk about the implications of this restoration. Now, naturally, if you, if you know anything about the narrative flow of the Bible, you know that when we say restoration, generally we're talking ultimately about Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. We're not going to go there today, and the reason there's two reasons. Number one is because we did Revelation 21 and 22 on December 21st, just a few weeks ago. And so if you're interested in, in a message on that, you can go to our website and get the podcast of that message. But the second reason is because we want to talk about what the Bible has to say about people who are uh, trying, by the power of the gospel, to live in a restored community now. As we wait for the ultimate restoration, what is a, a, a preview or a trailer or a, or a harbinger or a, a, a taste of that restoration that's to come? And we're going to do that by looking at four passages in the New Testament. Now, now let me just, a little rabbit trail, but let me say something about this. When, when, I, 
when I preach or teach, I really do prefer to say, we're going to be in this one text, and you can open your Bibles to that text, and we're going to camp out on that text. Next week, I'm going to do that. I'm going to say, open to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and that's going to be it. Because sometimes it gets hard to flip around, and you're looking, and you don't hear everything that's being said. So we're going to have, I don't like to do this, but we're going to have four passages today. So here's my recommendation. We're going to have the passages on the screen. So maybe set aside your, your Bibles or your phones. I know for some of you that'll be really hard to do, but set those aside and just listen and take, and take notes today. You'll be able to see the passages that, uh, that we look at. And the first passage we're going to look at is not the one that Mark read. That'll be second. But the first one is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, most of these passages that we'll look at today, if you've been around church for any length of time, they're going to be pretty familiar to you, but we want to come back and revisit how important they are. This is the last three verses of the Gospel of, of Matthew. Jesus has been crucified. He went to the grave. He's now resurrected, and he's been doing his resurrection thing. And now he comes to the disciples, and he says one last thing to them before he ascends into heaven. Now, let me just say... You have a dead guy who is now alive and he comes to you and says, I have one more thing to say to you. Are you going to listen? Chances are yes. And is it going to be important? Chances are yes. He's not talking about the Super Bowl. He's talking about something really, really important here. Okay? And here's what he says to them. And Jesus came to them and he said, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority everywhere has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So right out of the gate, we see that as redeemed people by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're already starting to talk in terms of those, ten, uh, those five created markers and those five uh, characteristics of flourishing that, that, that are important to the human condition. And right out of the gate, as image bearers of God, as the pinnacle of, of his creation, we're supposed to be on mission for God. We're supposed to go out and reflect his goodness and tell people the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in and of ourselves we're separated from God by our sin and it is only Christ and his appropriation of his forgiveness on the cross and his life through the resurrection that can re reconcile us or reunite us with God. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you what to do, but you need to understand that the one who's telling you to do this has all authority to tell you to do this. So he has all authority. He is and his authority comes from the fact that he's alive and he's supreme. We know he's supreme because God the Father has given him authority. That's, that's pretty important that the Father would give you authority. That makes you supreme. But we also know it because Paul says so in Colossians chapter 1. The supremacy of Christ. That he created everything and that he holds all things together and he's the beginning and the end. He is everything. So he's, he has all authority for that, but he also has all authority because he has defeated death. His resurrection gives him authority. Even the most ardent critic has to, has to wrestle with the fact that if the resurrection is, is true, and it is, what does that mean in terms of Jesus' authority in your life and everybody else's life? Of course, the big challenge is that most of us are, frankly, anti-authority. We may not talk about it a lot out, outwardly, but inwardly, we just, we just rage against any sort of authority in our lives. We we don't like the government. We don't, we, we don't like family structure. We don't like 
we don't like the church authority. We don't really like school authority, workplace authority. We really don't like a lot of that. And we're, let me tell you something. Anytime there's a meeting of business people or, or office people, uh, sort of a, a mid-morning lunch or at happy hour, usually they're talking about how much the authority at their place sucks and how they need to be an authority. That's generally what they're kind of talking to each other about. Not a lot of laughter there because some of you have done that. We've all done that. I mean, it's just, we, it, really what we're looking for is, is, is all authority to be supplanted by our authority. That's what we want. I mean, it's, some of this is kind of dated because I'm old, and, but I don't care. You, you're going to hear it anyway. In the 1980s, one of the most popular bumper stickers had only two words, and it was question authority. Not question authority if there's some problem with it. It was just, if it's authority, it must be bad. We need to question it. Does anybody remember that bumper sticker? Anybody have that bumper sticker? Anybody want that bumper sticker? I got about a thousand of them back there. Anyway, uh, how about John Cougar or John Mellencamp or John Cougar Mellencamp? Or what is his name today? I don't remember, but he keeps changing it. Anyway, he had that song, I Fight Authority and Authority Always Wins. That was a big, you know, authority song. I need to get some more contemporary music about authority. I know that. But you get the message. Here's the problem, though. There's always going to be an authority in our life. Do you understand there will always be an authority and probably multiple authorities in our life? Jesus is the ultimate authority. We need to remember that. And he says, all authority has been given unto me. Listen to me. Submit to my teachings. He's also delegated authority to the workplace, the government, the family, and church. And so we submit ourselves to that as well. We've had sermons about that as well. Tyler said it last week. You know, I... As much as we rage against this, as much as we don't like it, even so, if you really just walk through it logically, the biblical story really is the one that makes the most sense as to how there is some things that we can look at in the world that are good, but also the fact that we know that things are marred and bad and evil. The gospel is the only thing that really, truly makes sense of all of that. And if that's true, and we believe it is, Jesus is the author, the creator, and the perfecter of all of that. He has all authority, and we need to submit to him. And, and so then he says, here's what I want you to do. And in that paragraph, in that, in that verse, we read it, and in the English, we see four verbs, four verbs, four action words. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. But in the Greek, some of you have heard this before, and it's really important. In the Greek, there's only one true verb. The only true verb in that verse is make disciples. It's the only imperative. It's the only command. It's the only one in that perfect form where you say, this is what you're supposed to do. Everything else is actually a participle. So literally, it reads like this. In the Greek, it reads like this. As you are going, as you are living your life, as you are going to work, as you are going to a homeowners association meeting, as you are going to school, as you are doing whatever it is you're doing, make disciples teaching them as you are going and baptizing them as you are going, but make disciples. That's the focal point. This is, this, we say it at Redemption all the time, all of life is all for Jesus. This is an all of life is all for Jesus verse because it is as you are going, as you are living, here's what we're to be doing. We're to be making disciples in all the context that we are. In other words, grow the family. And he says, by the way, of all nations. And this is Jesus' way of saying, you're going to make disciples of people who are different than you. And that the real bride of Christ, the real body of Christ, has diversity in it. 
So even people that make you uncomfortable or awkward or, or are different than you, we need, we need to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ as well, all nations. In other words, grow the family. As you are going, all of life is all for Jesus. And then he says, and by the way, as you're doing this, I'm going to be with you all the time. That's one of the greatest but most overlooked promises in the Bible. He's with us all the time. And then finally, one more thing that I would say about this. This is really important. This little paragraph here actually defines for us what a disciple is. Now, we have books written on this. We have Bible studies on this. We have discipleship programs, and all of that is fine and good. But if you really want to know what are the two things that a disciple is and does, they're right here. They sit under the teaching of Jesus Christ. The disciple of Christ yearns to be taught by Jesus, by by his doctrine, in other words, by his words, and by people who know how to teach his words, by apostles and and teachers and pastors. You, You need to be learning from him. He is the ultimate rabbi or teacher for us besides being our Savior and Lord. So a disciple is one who is learning, taking in the teaching, but a disciple, secondly, is also one who is baptized. And see, many of us look at baptism as sort of, um, um, as sort of just an event that happens in a new believer's life and then it's kind of over. But the way baptism is treated in the New Testament and the way it's taught in the New Testament is it's true, it's kind of the beginning, you might say, of, of, your, of your life in Christ, but it's way more than that. Literally, you are baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that word baptizo literally means to be fully immersed for all time. It's the same word that they would use when they would take in the first century and they would dye a garment purple. It's fully immersed in the purple dye and then it's brought out completely purple to be purple for the rest of the garment's life. And so baptism is not just a beginning and it's important as a beginning, but it's, it's the way you're going to live your life from now on, fully immersed in the gospel and in the community of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that. We're having baptisms next Sunday. And it'll be a wonderful event, those who get baptized. But it's also significant in that you're being fully immersed into this life, this new created life that you have. And so, by the way, if you haven't been baptized, or if you're not sure Call me or, or text me or email me or whatever. Let's get together and let's talk about it. But that's what baptism really is. So that's a disciple, learning under the teaching and baptism. And so that's the first glimpse at the rest, restored community. The second one is this passage in Acts that Mark read. And they devoted themselves. That would be the disciples. By the way, let me mention this about this paragraph. This paragraph is interesting because it comes at the end of Acts chapter 2, which what happens in Acts chapter 2 is Peter, big old, dumb old, lumbering Peter, gets up and preaches the most amazing sermon in Acts chapter 2. The church in Jerusalem was 120 people before Peter preached, and 30 minutes later after he preached, the church was 3,000 people. Understand, Peter is the greatest megachurch pastor in the history of the church, okay? Nobody's got anything on him. So now there's 3,000 of them, and this is what Luke says about what they were doing. And they devoted themselves, that's an important word, to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, those four things. And awe, we'll talk about that word, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had things, all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The title of this paragraph in most Bible, uh, Bibles is this. It's the fellowship of the believers. And that word fellowship is used in this paragraph as well. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it's an interesting word because it literally means partnership or, here you go, Life with a shared purpose and mission. This is not just about having acquaintances. This is not just about being able to remember somebody's first and last name and what they do for a living. This is about going deep with people. This is about family. And, and, and then we look and, and, and it says that these, these people who are having fellowship also had something else in common. They had, they had something called awe for what was happening. Now, that word in the, in the English Standard Version, which is what we use at, 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 at Redemption, translates the Greek word phobos, which literally, it, it's where we get the, the English word phobia from. So fear, afraid, okay? So that's what the word is. Most translations say fear gripped the new church, and that's a true translation, but we need to understand that word fear, what it really means, because I think the English uh, Standard Version here is trying to capture the true um, sense of what that word means in this particular context. here's, Here's what we're trying to get at. There is actually a good kind of fear. Despite popular opinion, there are two kinds of fear, and they can be represented by the same word. There's, there's that bad, negative, energy-sucking fear that we don't like, but there is also a good, positive, and constructive fear. You know, that negative fear is the fear that you're going to get whacked or that you're doomed or that you're going to get hamstrung by something or the fear of the unknown and it's going to be bad and dark and ugly and scary or, or especially the fear of somebody you don't trust. And can you really be vulnerable with them? Can you really enter into a relationship with them? And, and the Bible recognizes this negative fear in in many different places. Cast all of your anxieties on Him. That's a a verse about negative fear being given to God. Uh, John says in 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. That would be a negative fear. He doesn't want you to cast out a positive fear. He wants you to cast out a a negative fear. Um, uh, We're told in Proverbs and and in the Psalms that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Well, that's not a negative fear. That's not a cowering fear over in the corner thinking God's going to whack you. That doesn't help you start wisdom. That's a good reverential awe fear. This is a negative fear. God does not give us a spirit of fear, it says in the New Testament. That would be a negative fear. It's a negative fear, and it's even a, a selfish fear, but it's also a real fear. It's not a very motivating fear. I mean, it might motivate you to do some things that you wish you hadn't done, but it's a fear nonetheless. I mean, here you go. This negative fear can motivate you into compliance, right? You'll do it, but you don't want to. You know, that kind of thing. It might motivate you to run, even though you don't necessarily have to, but it's never going to motivate you into relationship and covenant and love. But there is also a very good fear, a positive fear, a healthy fear. It's a fear that actually builds relationship and love and community and joy rather than assailing those things. It's a fear that's rooted in reverence and awe and respect and and true joy and hope and it motivates us to to serve and to love and to appreciate 
28 years, a little over 28 years ago, I began to court Jackie, the woman who I'm married to now. And I want you to know that when I began to court Jackie, I did it with a great amount of fear and another biblical word, trembling. Both of those things together. Awe and reverence is how some people say it. Fear and trembling. And even to this day, I live with her as her spouse in some sense of of fear and trembling. But it's a good fear and trembling. It's one that drives me into relationship, drives me into intimacy, drives me into trust because I have a level of awe and respect and reverence for her that is due her as my spouse and as the one who I love. Here's another example. How many of you have ever heard of Wayne Gretzky? Okay, I know this is Arcadia. Most of you haven't. I get it. Hockey. What a lousy. Yeah, okay. All right, so most of them, Wayne Gretzky, greatest hockey player who ever lived. Okay, here's the second one. Now, I think one of you back in the corner maybe have heard of this guy. How many of you have ever heard of Gary Unger? All right, two, thank you very much. I got two witnesses right over here. Okay, so Gary Unger was not Wayne Gretzky, but he was awesome in his day. He played in the, in the, uh, mostly in the 70s, the, uh, hockey he played in the NHL. He is second on the all-time list for the most consecutive games without skipping a game. 924 straight National Hockey League hockey games without, without skipping a game. And he was a wonderful player. And let me tell you how much the NHL thought of Gary Unger. In my house right now, you can come over and you can help me put this thing together. I have a Gary Unger jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> Ain't no Wayne Gretzky jigsaw puzzles out there, but there is a Gary Unger jigsaw puzzle. I got one of those. All right, so about 25 years ago, I had the opportunity through a mutual friend, to meet and then later to sit down and have coffee with Wayne Gretzky and Gary Unger for 90 minutes. And it was awesome. It was awesome. Let me tell you something. I went to that coffee with a certain level of fear and trembling. But, but not like I'm in a cower in the corner. It was just like, I, 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 wanna, I don't want to embarrass these guys. I don't want to let these guys down. I want to I wanna be in relationship with them. I wanna, it, was, it was a driven, good, positive kind of motivating fear. One more I'll give you, Okay. I want to pound away at this because I want you to see this. It's so important. I talked about that, that fear of the Lord that gives us uh, wisdom also. But, but even beyond that, I would say this. Uh, there's a certain level of fear that I have as a pastor and of you, our congregation. And that's a good thing. I'm called to be a pastor. And I'm called to be your shepherd. And there is joy and there is diligence and there is appreciation, and there is gratitude in all of that, but if it isn't laced or sprinkled or inundated with a certain level of awe and reverence and respect and, yes, fear, it's not going to be a good thing. Amen? I need to fear the fact that I've been called as a pastor. There needs to be a a reverential, respectful understanding for that. And I don't want to let you guys down, and I want to be driven into community and into love with you guys. That's important for us. And so they had that kind of fear there. And then you see that this, this paragraph is also filled with these five flourishing threads from Genesis chapter 2. You, you know, like verse 42, the word devoted. They were devoted to these things. That literally means they're steadfast in their commitment. This is a word of covenant, intimacy, and community. And those four things they were devoted to are things that inspire and, and help covenant and intimacy and community, doctrine, 
sound principles to live by, fellowship, partnering in life, the breaking of bread. That's actually two things in this paragraph. There's two ways that we break bread together. One is the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of of coming to the Lord's table, which we do here every single Sunday, where we proclaim the authority of Christ in and over the church, and then we also proclaim His death until He comes again. That's a really important way that we break bread together. But it also means that we sit down and we have meals together. In the ancient Mediterranean world, one of the single most intimate things that you could do with another person was to sit down and have a meal with them. And you never did that with somebody that was your enemy. You always did that with somebody you were in covenant relationship with. Today, I would, I would suggest that the way we, we say that today is, hey, w- w- could we get a cup of coffee together? If you were to have a subtext to that, it would be, I'd like to go a little bit deeper with you and get more intimate with you. That's essentially what it means to get the... That, that's what he's getting at here. And then finally, prayer. The power of prayer is, is amazing. And, and the prayer is not only for each other, and we should pray for each other, but it's also for, for those who don't yet know Christ. We should be praying for them. There's a bond that happens when you pray diligently with and for and over people. There's just a power there. That, that, that is mostly unexplained. And by the way, have you ever prayed for somebody that you don't like? And then you're done praying and suddenly it's hard to dislike them? There's power in this prayer. We also see yieldedness here. Certainly you can see how they willingly and lovingly and enthusiastically were submitting to one another and yielded to one another. And certainly generosity. Obviously in this passage. They were giving as people had need. Now, I'm going to tee off here just a little bit because I think this is important because this has been in the water for quite some time. And I'm going to start it off by saying this. You and I, as 21st century people, we need to understand one foundational principle to understanding the Bible, and that's this. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. You get that? The Bible can never mean what it never meant. We live in a time where people right now, all they want to do is come to the Bible and change the meaning of those words into something else, something that fits their life, fits their lifestyle, fits their, their sin. And this is not just a 21st century phenomenon. This has been happening for centuries. But the Bible can never mean what it never meant. And, and more recently, in the last 50 or 60 years, people have zealously come to this passage right here and have literally taught this passage this way, saying this, this is Luke, by the power of the Holy Spirit, telling us that possessions are evil and in the early church, there was this blind rush for everybody to get rid of what they owned and all their wealth. And that's not what it's saying. You have to read the the passage in its entirety and what you see is that they gave voluntarily. There was no blind rush. There was no assumption that the possessions were evil. And they gave, what? As there was need. Again, no blind rush. And by the way, notice, isn't it interesting, if there was this blind rush to get rid of everything, what about all those homes that people still owned where they were meeting all the time? And then further, if you take this to its logical conclusion, if all possessions are evil and there's a blind rush to get rid of your possessions, then if you're giving all of your evil possessions away, then that makes you evil. Amen? You see that? See, this is a problem when we try to approach Scripture with 
our agenda and not let Scripture just speak to us. This was a generous community, no doubt, and we can learn from their example. But don't make the mistake of turning a passage like this into social dogma. It's Christian community, but it's not social dogma. And so we see in Acts this submittedness and this yieldedness and this intimacy and this covenant of them living together. And then we go to the third passage, which is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And here's what the author of Hebrews writes, and we see more restoration here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, now right out of the gate, you say, who are these cloud of witnesses? Are they people watching us, the church? No, not in this case. The author of Hebrews has just taken us through chapter 11, which is known as the uh, Christian Hall of Fame of Faith. And, and, it's, and, and the author is, is, is talking about all these different people and how their faith in God helped them and, and what their faith in God did for them. And he's saying, we get to look back at those people and they are the witnesses testifying to us, therefore, about the greatness of God and his salvation. They are the witnesses testifying to us. And, and I want you to think about how important that is in family, how important it is for a family to have legacy, inspiration, and example from those who went before us. Amen? My grandfather on my father's side, my father's 94. He used to attend here. He just can't get, they can't get to church anymore. 94 years old. His father, we called him Pop, Walter Switzer Sr., he lived to be 100 years old. And it was like that was his life goal. He, he made it to 100, and then three weeks later, he died. It was almost like, okay, I made 100. I did my thing. I'm done. And he said bye. And, and, and he lived to be 100, and he died in 1986. So he died before any of my children were born. So Shelby and Darby never got to know Pop. And yet at every opportunity, I would sit down with Shelby and Darby, and I would tell them about Pop because he was awesome. And I would tell him principles that he would teach. And, and he became part of their legacy. And he became part of their inspiration. And he became an example. He was somebody who went before them. And then you see in this passage that the author is comparing sin. Uh, making a, he's saying sin is like dead weight to somebody who's trying to run in a competition. Okay, so, you know, I'm a runner. I mean, how... Could you, I, I step up, could you imagine how, this would just be ridiculous. I'd step up to the starting line, Jackie's there, and I'd say, okay, Jackie, bring the weights over. And I get wrist weights, ankle weights, and one of those big things around my waist, weights, okay? And then I'd go run the race. Okay, here you go. I'm going to use the S word. That would be stupid, okay? And yet, you and I, all day long, we are adding the dead weight of sin to our lives and to our relationships, thinking that somehow that's going to help us, but all it does is weigh us down and holds us back from running the race that God has called us to run. Imagine this, uh, just for a minute, imagine this. Let's say that all of your friends, all of your coworkers, and everybody in your family, including if you're married, your spouse, let's just imagine they all quit sinning. How much better would your life be? It'd be awesome, right? Okay, so here you go. You need to quit sinning. I need to quit sinning. That's what we need to do. And how do we do that? The author says you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
How much better would our lives be if we truly fixed our eyes, focused our eyes, not just blepo, not just a quick look, but rather thoreo, the, the, the word that says look longingly, deeply at Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Him. And some of us say, you know, I just, my faith, I struggle with my faith and it's, sometimes it's strong and sometimes it isn't. Well, the reason is because you're talking about your faith there and it is going to be vacillating and, and sometimes strong and sometimes weak. The real faith that we have is given to us by God. Jesus is the author and the perfecter. He is the creator, the beginning, the alpha. The, he's everything when it comes to faith. We need to fix our eyes on him. And then finally, restored community looks like 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where John writes these words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You look at verse 1, and, and one of the important factors about verse 1 is this. It, 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 one of the things that makes uh, such a close family, makes us such a close family, is that we know Jesus, and the world does not. One of the things that makes a group of people a family is that they have distinguishing characteristics from other peoples and other groups. We need to understand that. We're different. And we have to wrestle with that. I know we have to wrestle with that because we're, we're Western civilization people who believe in egalitarianism and homogenization and think that that's the route to, to all this good, all this stuff that we want. But the problem is that it's just not, it's not true. Families have distinctives. Scripture said so. And, and here's what's funny. You read social science on family, and social science will tell you the same thing. There are four distinguishing characteristics of any family. It's what makes them different from other people. And we have to wrestle with that and realize that there's going to be a, a difference. And we can't get away from that truth. Truth, We're, we're going to be different. Not better, not odd, but we are going to be distinct. And then Leon Morris comes along. He's one of the great New Testament scholars of all time. And he says that verses 2 and 3 literally are what we shall be. He says these verses are restoration verses. And he says it's all based in God's love, which certainly includes His grace and His forgiveness. And understand it takes humility to, to be able to appreciate the fact that we need grace and forgiveness. And then verse 3, it's interesting. Verse 3 is the only place in this entire letter where, where John uses the word hope. A lot of people are surprised by that because you think of the Apostle John and you think he said hope all the time. Only once in this book. And specifically here, it is a reference to the assured promises that we have in Christ, which is life in the everlasting New Jerusalem. And then, of course, verse 2 says that we're going to be like Him. We're going to be like Him. In eternity... In restoration, you and I are going to have glorified bodies that will never age, will never have illness, and have no sin marring them. I want you to think about this reality. Uh, in the New Jerusalem, I can assure you, there will be no pastors, no doctors, and no vitamins. Amen? So all that money we're spending on supplements, you don't have to worry about it anymore. I think that's really good news. 
As we wrap up, I want to go back to something I talked about two weeks ago. When we were talking about the fall in Genesis 3, the entrance of sin into the human condition, we went into chapter 4, and we told the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain eventually murders his brother Abel. It's the first thing that happens in the Bible after the fall is there's a murder between two brothers. And, and God comes to Cain, just like he went to Adam in Genesis 3, he comes to Cain in Genesis 4 and he confronts Cain in his sin. And of course, Cain is, is worried about this and he's kind of flip like Adam was and he's blaming others, but you can tell that he's also worried about this. And Cain begins to realize that he's in trouble because of the consequence of his sin. But what does God ultimately do in those last four verses, verses 14 through 16? God ultimately extends to Cain, a murderer, his protection and his provision. Puts a mark on him and says, you're going to go and you're going to be reminded of your sinfulness, which will remind you of how much you need me. And you're going to have a hard time in this world but ultimately, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide for you. That's what human beings want. We want protection and provision. We want to be loved. We want to be known. We want intimacy and covenant. And we want to be able to be yielded to others without any fear of reprisals. And we want to be generous. And we want to live in a bond. We want all of those things. Here's the problem. Most of the time, we're looking at all the wrong things in the world that we expect to fulfill that for us. This passage in in Genesis chapter 4 shows that there's only one place that can fulfill those things for us, and that's God, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we rest in that for our redemption and our restoration.